Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a certified Story Grid editor, and I'm also a writer. And I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Leslie Watts. I'm a Story Grid certified editor, and I help fiction and nonfiction writers tell epic stories that matter. This season on the Writer's Room Podcast, we are doing a full macro analysis of Gone Girl, by Gillian Flynn, and that was published in 2012. All right, so last week we took you through the editor's six core questions. Um, Today we're gonna focus on the beginning hook. So let me just give you a quick recap of what the beginning hook is about. I think it's the first 10% of the novel, it's very short, uh, and it's this. When Nick's wife, Amy, goes missing on their fifth anniversary, Nick must decide whether he'll provide truthful details to the police so they can find her as quickly as possible, or whether he'll keep certain things to himself. Nick decides to lie and withhold information, and as a result, the police take him in for questioning. Now, the exact five commandments in the beginning hook break down like this. The inciting incident, it's Nick and Amy's fifth anniversary. The turning point, Amy goes missing. Crisis, does Nick tell the truth about the relationship, the anniversary plans, his whereabouts, etc., uh, so that they can help find Amy or not. The climax, Nick decides to lie. And in fact, he tells five lies simply while the police are there investigating the initial scene of the crime. The resolution is that Nick is taken in for questioning. Leslie, do you have anything to add there? No, I just think it's really interesting that we have a, the way that this beginning hook is set up because there's no crime that we know of, right? Like Amy's gone and the assumption is that she's been taken, that something bad has happened, Uh, but we don't actually have, there is no actual crime in that respect. No, there's a lot of interesting things about this book. Um, And really in order to keep these episodes to a reasonable (laughs) length, I think what we've both done is chosen a couple of key points to to look at. Um, Leslie, I think as, as it's a shock, I know, but I think you're going to look at point of view and narrative device. Do you want to just kick us off a little bit with that? Sure. Now, the the interesting thing to me about the story, right, is we have a very overt point of view and The point of view choice is first person. We've got different examples of that, right? Nick is telling his story and we don't know in the beginning exactly in what context. Um, But then of course we have in in this beginning hook, we also have Amy's diary, right? And we talked about last time how that feels like it's written for an audience, not just written for her, but, but ostensibly it's a diary, right? These are two telling points of view. So I talk about this in the point of view beat uh, that was just published in, this month. Um, and, but it was last month. <laughs> <laughs> published in Time November, more. November, published 2020. Right. So I talk about how there are telling points of view and showing points of view. And this is not related to what's happening at the paragraph and sentence level in terms of showing and telling and that old uh, advice that you must show, not tell, right? 
This is a macro level telling. And there is a lot, it does feel tell heavy, but one of the things I notice is that the way that we show in a telling point of view is really different, right? We, there are comparisons, like that's one way. Um, and, and the big show to me in the course of telling is all about the narrator, And this was an insight I had just when we were talking about this uh, before we started recording is that the, when you have an overt narrative situation or narrative device, right? We know Nick is telling the story. We know that, um, that Amy's writing her diary, right? And then later on, we won't talk about that because it happens in the middle build. We get something else from Amy, but we know that. So that's part of the story. That's a conscious choice that is telling us something about the person narrating. And this came to me because a lot of Nick's adjectives and the way he described things said more about him than the people or the circumstances he was describing. So that was really interesting to me. I really love the point of view beat that you did. So I I really want to encourage everyone to go and get it and read it. it. It really opened my eyes to both of these topics, point of view and narrative device. I mean, I've been working with you now on this podcast, on the Roundtable podcast, just our general conversations and studyings through StoryGrid. And I know that you worked really hard on it and we can all benefit now from all of your really hard work. There, this novel, even though I'd read it before, you know, when it came out, I, I really noticed the point of view and the narrative device this time, not because it's in your face and overt, but because I have a deeper understanding of these two concepts now, like right in, uh, I think it's both in the first chapter, we see Nick addressing Amy and we see Nick addressing the reader directly. This is the type of stuff that readers pick up on subconsciously. It's all very subtle, but they're picking up on it. And this is the way that, this is why if we wanna be novelists, although studying films is great and I highly recommend it for the macro story structure, it doesn't replace reading and studying novels because here we can see Gillian Flynn in a sentence or two, conveying to us what the narrative device is and we pick it up intuitively subconsciously and we just keep going now i never understood the telling device or the telling point of view because uh when i first started writing it was show don't tell show don't tell i mean it was you beaten over the head with show don't tell and i think that's one of the reasons i have defaulted to a third person limited point of view, where the camera is right on the protagonist's shoulders. If the protagonist doesn't see it or hear it or think it or feel it, then the reader doesn't know about it. And that works. There's nothing wrong with it. But our, I think our challenge as writers is to really explore all of the options and to understand what they are, what they do well, what they don't do so well so that when we have a story idea, we can pick and choose from the palette of point of view options and the palette of narrative device options. We can pick what we need to really make our story idea sing. Because if if Gillian Flynn had chosen a third person limited point of view, which she totally could have, and the camera was sitting on Nick's shoulder throughout, this would have been a very different book. But here we have Nick very clearly telling us his point of view. And we talked about this last episode. You know, my sense is that it's Nick and Amy explaining their story, telling their stories to a jury of their peers. They're explaining their behavior. It's as though Nick is explaining 
to us why he decided to stay with this woman. Because it, from the outside, it doesn't make sense to us. So he's sort of letting us in on the journey he has gone through to get where he is at the beginning of the book. Because the book comes full circle, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you have those first couple of paragraphs where he talks about her head, and then it goes into the story. And at the very end of the book, he's talking about her head again. Anyway, I think it's, I think it's amazing. It's wonderful work that you've done. And I never would have picked up on any of the stuff if it wasn't for, uh, for all the, the information that you've put in the beat. So thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Um, oh, <laughs> I need to talk to you more often. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, what's really interesting too, is that that third person selective omniscient, right? That's an objective point of view. You can't hide things, right? And so we really need Nick being able to hide things, right? It reminds me a lot of the murder of Roger Ackroyd, right? And it's crafted in much the same way, right? There's that moment when he, he smells the crepes, He's, you know, he's getting out of bed, he smells the crepe, and then he's like, okay, go, right? And then the next time he picks up the narration of what's happening, you know, the, you know, what's happening in the story's present, is he showing up at the bar, right? So there's this gap that in the murder of Roger Ackroyd, is, you know, some serious, I, I hate to give it away, uh, but some funny business. And that's exactly what's happening here too, right? There's something that the author of the narration, right? The narrator doesn't want you to know. And you can really easily just kind of slide that in. Although I suspect Gillian Flynn was doing that was trying to like, you know, she was leaving little breadcrumbs for us. She was telling. And so by the time you get to the end, I think it's about the end of the beginning hook, you are actually wondering, oh, could he have done this? He might be guilty. We don't know. And, you know, on the first go with the story. So it's really fascinating. And I'll tell you, Valerie, my Kindle version of this has so many notes, you know, so many little highlights and then notes attached to it because there's so much happening on the micro level. And I won't go into it all here, um, obviously, because that wouldn't make for a very fun podcast. <laughs> but, but this is a great even if you're not writing a psychological thriller, even if you're, you know, it doesn't matter what you're writing, paying attention to the way that she's crafting the scenes and the way she's crafting her paragraphs and sentences is, would be well worth your time. Yeah, absolutely. I had the same experience as you, only I was, you know, I'm analog. <laughs> so I, I have notes in my book and when I started to prepare for this podcast, I thought I, I can't say it all because um, we'll be here a month of Sundays. So like you, I have pulled up and I'm just focusing on a couple of things. When I pick up a masterwork to study, I am studying with a purpose. And the reason is that, and Gone Girl is an excellent example. In these masterworks, there's so much happening that if you're to do a deep dive into a novel, into every single masterwork, in my case anyway, it would take me away from actually working on my novel. A full deep dive, a full story grid treatment on a novel is a big job. It's huge, it's time consuming, it's intellectually exhausting. Now I recommend doing that at some point because you learn really how to work the story grid tools. In this case right now for my novel, uh, Immortal, I have a number of masterworks 
that I'm learning from and master storytellers that I'm learning from. From Gone Girl, what I'm specifically paying attention to is the story structure, the psychological elements in the book, and the narrative drive. Those are the three things I'm really looking at. Narrative drive, which is different than narrative device. Leslie's over on narrative device. I'm over on narrative drive because it's the thing that fascinates me most about storytelling. It is what keeps readers turning pages. Why does someone stay with a book? Why do they put it down and go away? So the story structure, I want to know, how did Gillian Flynn make a nonlinear story work? How did she make a nested story work? How does she telegraph the ending of the story in the beginning of the story? Because the beginning and the ending have to mirror. For the psychological elements, I want to know, how does uh, Flynn show the reader that Amy is a sociopath because she could have just told it to us. It would have taken a sentence. It wouldn't have nearly been as much fun. So how does she, how does she roll that out bit by bit? So we, what are the puzzle pieces that she's uh, leaving for us that we then put together at the end? How does she convey Nick's state of mind? And what you were just talking about in point of view is one of those, one of those things. In fact, everything that you said is going to touch on everything that I said, because even though we have to try and parse out all of these storytelling tools and principles separately to talk about them, the reality is that they work together. They all mesh together in a, in a tapestry to create the story. So everything is touching everything else. And also, how is Flynn destabilizing the reader? Because one of the key elements of a psychological story is that the reader doesn't know what's real and what's not real, who to trust, who not to trust, who's telling the truth, who's not telling the truth. And it's a bit too close to home right now in November 2020, after uh, you know four years of, of uh, the American president, um, the outgoing American president, and just after this year, which has been wacky, we're all in a state of who do I listen to? Who do I believe? What's real? What's not? So part of what I'm also doing is looking at the world around me and trying to figure out who's listening to which news source and why are they listening to that news? If Are they choosing to not listen to the news? Why? Because all of this, this is the type of stuff that we do as writers. We take all the stuff that's happening in the real world and we put it into our novels. So, I mean, Flynn is doing this entire, it totally. Narrative drive. How does Gillian Flynn keep us turning pages? What is the central dramatic question here? What form or forms of narrative uh, drive is she using primarily? Um, does that make sense so far, Leslie? Yes. And I'm thinking about, you know, what you're saying about how we have all these individual tools and, and ways of looking at the story. We might think of them as lenses. You can, you know, you, you choose your metaphor, um, but they all have to work together. So whatever we choose Right. Last time we talked a little bit about how this is at bottom. This is kind of a marriage story, not just kind of. This is at bottom, right? Like, what's the story about? Well, that it's about a lot of things, but we have a marriage story, but it's dropped into the container of a psychological thriller, right? Because that makes it more interesting. It's ways a way we can spice it up, right? Uh, because Marriage stories themselves are not that popular. Um, but then we've got to look at point of view. Okay, what point of view makes sense given all the things, right? What, which, um, what narrative device, you know, which I think comes first um, usually, or it's a good way, it's a useful way to think about it first. And are they working together? Does that point of view that you're choosing give you the narrative device 
that's that makes the most sense. What question do you want pulling the reader through the story? And so that interconnectedness is really important, but we need to look at the individual questions in isolation and then pull them into the bigger, you know, the bigger context. Yeah, hundred um, percent. We talked a little bit before we came on air and I think it's important to repeat here. This is a psychological thriller, but it's very different than Primal Fear, which is also a psychological thriller. At, with Primal Fear, as the reader, we can easily keep it at arm's length. And, and all those nefarious things that are happening are over there somewhere. And we know it's not real. And we can close the book and go on with our day. One of the many innovations that Gillian Flynn did with Gone Girl is she took that element of the psychological thriller, which is the question of, is this person sane or not? And instead of making it a, a someone who is not attached to us at all, like um, Aaron is in Primal Fear, she is making us ask questions about a character who's very close to the protagonist, his wife. She's also making us question the protagonist's mental state of mind because, you know, these two are made for each other. Neither one of them is, uh, you know, playing with a full deck. <laughs> you know, these are, these are two people who have really uh, succumbed to their shadow sides and are really letting, letting their shadows control them. It's fascinating stuff. So that's one of the, one of the many um, innovations that she's made. Now, I'm not sure where to start here. I start with story structure, I guess. So my story is also nonlinear and it has a nested story. That is a really complicated story structure. I really don't recommend it. I, I'm, I'm seriously, unless you must use this in your story to make it work. And that's the reality I came to. I couldn't make my story idea work any other way. And I even wanted Leslie to talk me out of it. And she's like, no, you're right. It won't work any other way. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's complicated. It's tricky. It's as Margaret Atwood says, it's fancy footwork. You know, it's some fancy storytelling here. It means that I've really got to study what other master storytellers have done. How have they pulled this off? Because when you have two different stories going on, it could be multiple storylines or in the case of Gone Girl or my novel, a nested story. So a story within a story. They can compete with one another. And the effect that you can have and and I'm I'm confident that as I'm saying this, you're thinking of books that you've read where this has happened or movies that you've watched where this has happened. You get into one storyline and just as you're getting into it and understanding the characters and feeling empathy for the characters, the story switches to another storyline. And just as you're getting into those, it switches again. And it's this, it's this feeling of being jerked back and forth a lot and it gets really frustrating. So in fact, most, that's sort of the default, unless you really know what you're doing, your, your story with multiple storylines, your book with multiple storylines or with a nested story, that's what you'll end up with unless you really know how to make these things work. So, I mean, Gillian Flynn knows how to make it work. So I wanted to know what she did. And at the, the most basic level, what she has done is taken the nested story and used it to create narrative drive in the nonlinear story. It's so well done. It's so well done. It's one simple technique in terms of, it's simple to understand. It's a bugger to execute, <laughs> but it's not, it's not complicated to understand at a theoretical level. So what do I mean by that? The book opens with Nick in, in today, okay? 
where he is talking about her head and Amy's head and what he always wonders what makes her think and how her mind works. And then he takes us back to their fifth anniversary and the story spirals from there and brings us back to the present moment at the end of the book when he starts to talk about her head again. So we have the first, uh, there aren't really chapters in the book, but the first bit from Nick Dunn, where he's talking about um, it being their first and their fifth anniversary. Clearly he doesn't like her very much. <laughs> uh, she doesn't seem to be doing anything untoward. She's making a beautiful uh, breakfast for their anniversary. Uh, he, he loves the, you know, her butter yellow hair. I mean, it's, he really talks about her as being a beautiful woman, but one he doesn't want to be with, and he has to psych himself up. You know, he says, okay, and go. Like, okay, now I, I'm going to go and have this breakfast with this woman. I'm going to endure it. The next chapter is, is the first bit of Amy's diary. And this is our the first time we have anything really from Amy's point of view. We have what Nick's, in the opening chapter, we have Nick's, perception of what Amy would say. Amy would say this is just like Nick, but it's not Amy's actual words. He quotes her, I think it's in this first chapter, it might be in the, the next one, where they go to Missouri and she says, should I leave my soul at the door? Again, it's, her it's hearsay, right? It's not actually Amy's words, it's Nick telling us what Amy said. So there's, there's, this is a he said, she said story. So we have to, as the reader, figure out where's the truth, because it's usually somewhere in between. So anything that he says, we have to take with a grain of salt. Anything that she says, we have to take with a grain of salt. And we kind of have to figure it out in the middle. So we don't hear from Amy directly until her diary. And she loves him. Oh, the birds are singing, the sun is shining. The one, her one true love has entered her life. And you think, like instantly, okay, I know I'm talking about story structure, but I'm going to talk about narrative drive because I, I can't separate them. Because what this does is plant questions in our mind. We're saying, why doesn't he want to spend his fifth anniversary with her? Why does he have to psych himself up so much? What is she doing that is so wrong? We don't know. And then we see from her point of view, and she loves him so much, then you think, okay, well, given that they, they were head over heels for each other at the outset, now only five years later, they hate one another or he hates her. What happened in those five years? All of these questions are spooling in our minds. And every single time, Oh God, I mean, I almost want to say every paragraph because it feels that way. There's a Gillian gives us a little bit of information, but then she also gives us another question. And the first time I studied narrative drive, it was, it was on the round table podcast. It was a study in pink, the Sherlock Holmes, the BBC Sherlock Holmes, uh, special. I saw the same thing. The writers there would answer a question for us but in the next piece of dialogue they gave us another question to ask so you're as a writer you're constantly baiting your your reader the reader is on a need-to-know basis so you give them just enough information to keep them interested in the book and if you answer a major question you got to ask another major question immediately because we are wired to solve puzzles it's, it's natural for us. If there's an outstanding question, we want to know the answer. This is why we love gossip, by the way, because there's a question out there and we want to know, ooh, are, the, are, are that married couple that we know, are they really having problems? I wonder why. I wonder what he did. I wonder what she did. We might not do, you know, indulge in it. We, you know, our rational selves, will, hopefully, will intervene and we'll think, no, you, Valerie, not your business. Carry on with your life. <laughs> but we are curious beings. We want to know this stuff. This is why The Crown right now is so popular. It's the Diana and Charles season. 
it's, we want to know, we want to know, we're so curious. Well, that, and it's a really great series with great acting and all that sort of stuff. But, but at the core of everything is a great story, right? And these are the devices that we use for storytelling. Anyway, I'm going on and on. Leslie, any questions so far? Anything to uh, add? Well, what I, you know, one thing that's really interesting to me about this story is the way that Flynn sets the scene, right? How she sets up the story, because we have a kind of covert prologue. Yes. Which I think is, is so smart, right? I think people, because, you know, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who hate prologues and think they're the worst thing ever. And those people who just love them. Well, that might be a bit of an overstatement. <laughs> Simplification. Um, but you can do a prologue without drawing attention to it, without calling it as such, right? So we get this situation where, you know, we he, Nick is setting us up, right? He's, he gets the first word. Maybe that's appropriate. Um, maybe not, but he's our protagonist. So that makes sense, right? So he is not just, not just for the relationship, because we need to understand that, but we need to understand who he is and we need to understand who Amy is. And so Flynn is just giving this to us, weaving it in, you know, so we get the little prologue that gives us enough to go on and then weaving those details in almost, right? It feels offhand, but there is nothing offhand about it, right? The way that um, that comment, oh, that's just Nick, right? And and the way she sets up to me, the lack of meaning in their lives. Yeah. Right. Which is ultimately why they have to engage in this ridiculous charade, bringing lots of other people into it. Right. And we know people like that, don't we? We know people who are so bored and have no meaning in their lives so much to the, to the point where they have to pull other people in. They've got to create drama that sucks other people in, right? And that's what's happening here. They're both, they don't have meaning. They don't know how to get it. So they're using really messed up tactics to do that, right? He's being naughty and being a slob, right? And she targets him. And in the process, it wakes them up. Now, they're not super wonderful people by the end, but you can see how we're setting up that lack of meaning. And it's it comes from the environment, right? These two people happening here, not, and I'm not talking about Missouri or New York City. I'm talking about just, it's the time, right? And setting that up so that there wasn't any way this story couldn't happen in this environment. So it's just, it's beautiful. Um, I, and I, you know, I talked about this before, I think. I don't enjoy the story for the story, right? To me, I don't want to spend time with despicable people. But the care that Flynn took in putting this together is worth, you know, like I'm willing to, to go there for that. So that's just a to appreciate her craft. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the first book of hers that I've read, but it's not the last. It's not the last. Okay. What else do I have here on my list? Let's talk about the psychological elements. Now, the key, I think, uh, now, oh, I think it might have been the girl on the train episode. I can't remember. It was the season of the Roundtable podcast when I studied psychological thrillers. I watched a whole bunch of movies and read a whole bunch of books to see what, to see, first of all, if there were conventions or obligatory scenes 
for stories with the psychological uh, bent to them? If so, what they were. And I articulated a whole bunch of them. Essentially, it's what you would expect to see normally, but amped up a whole bunch. Like in um, uh, Black Swan, Nina is, she is a devoted artist. We've seen, we've seen this in lots and lots of performance stories. Uh, Rocky, uh, all of them, in fact, I think all performance stories would have a, a an artist or a, a sports person or whatever, you know, your whatever type of performance story you're doing. Someone who's really dedicated to winning, who, who really wants to win, because that makes the competition, uh, that makes your core event of the performance story worth watching or worth reading about, right? But with Nina, it's it's gone one step further than that, to the point where it has controlled her entire life. She's not just passionate about it, she's willing to give her life for it. And that marks, that indicates a, a, something that's beyond the norm, beyond healthy, beyond a mental, a, a healthy mental state. We saw the same thing in Whiplash, which is just to me, I, I love the story, but it breaks my heart at the same time. Because when I first watched it, of course I had a son who was about the same age as Andrew, I still have a son, but at the same time, he was he was the same age as Andrew, and I I could just see my boy in there, going with you know bright eyed and bushy tailed, and this wretched prof, who was just terrible to me. But Andrew starts as such a lovely young man who just wants to be really great at his craft, and you see him start to break mentally over the course of the story. Why? Because everything is just pushed, you know, it's like in Spinal Tap. Their, their speaker goes to 11, right? If you've never seen Spinal Tap, seriously, you've got to go see Spinal Tap. In a psychological story, the mental state of the character has gone to 11. It's just, just a little bit beyond healthy. <laughs> So what we have to do as writers is figure out how to create that. And you got to keep your, your reader, uh, you got to keep, keep them off balance, keep them switching feet. You, you, we start off, we know that Nick is our protagonist. That's the first character that we see in the book. The first character is typically the protagonist, it doesn't have to be, but you're going to make your life a lot easier if it is. We know he's our protagonist. He gets the first word in the story. The last word goes to Amy because one, she's Amy, but isn't it interesting that the last word goes to the antagonist in the story? Because she's the one who won, really. He is trapped. Well, that's a way of seeing it. As I've said that now, I'm already seeing other interpretations in my mind, but that's one way of looking at it. So how do we as writers keep our reader off balance? Keep wondering, do we trust Nick or not? Is he believable? Is he a, is his word truthful? What about Amy? She seems in the whole first half of the book to be a lovely young woman. And yes, she gets frustrated with him, but really, he, he meets her and he seems great. And then he, you know, is gone for months and then just says one day he just shows up. Well, I mean, that's not cool. Or, you know, like we can see her point of view. It seems to be a relationship where that is not, you know, starting to go off the rails, but you can really see why she's frustrated with him and you can see why he's frustrated with her. So far, it doesn't seem unusual it's interesting it's totally interesting because there's so many questions coming up but it hasn't shifted yet to the really the reader hasn't yet gone oh my god who are these two people that happens at the midpoint shift right which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks when we do the middle build so the whole way through the through the, the first half of the book certainly here in the beginning hook 
right from the first couple of chapters and it carries all the way through, but immediately she, she puts, Gillian Flynn puts the fact that neither of these people are to be 100% trusted. She puts that on the table right from the get-go. It doesn't suddenly surprise us at the middle build that Amy's diary is not true because there've been all these little clues. Suddenly we go, oh my God, what is going on here? And that is jet fuel to propel you to the ending payoff because the middle build can sag and that's where you lose people. So right at the place where a writer typically loses the reader, Gillian Flynn decided to let us know that that diary that we became so invested in was fake. <laughs> so good. So good. Anything to add, Leslie? Well, while you were talking, I, it occurred to me, and I, you know, I would need to test this, but a hypothesis that's kind of coalescing in my mind is that psychological thrillers, part of what really gets, you know, part of what really gets under our skin with these is that they are mundane situations, right? Like they're just, you know, it's just life, but it's life, life takes, at 11, right? And it takes a really dark turn. And which, you know, I don't know about you. I'm feeling like this year, <laughs> <laughs> We've been kind of living in that, right? Um, in lots of different ways. And so that, right, we can see how that's appealing to just, oh, let me just go look on some other stranger, right? They're not super heroic people, right? I mean, it's, yeah, it is just that, I hate that term on steroids, but but that's kind of what we mean. Like, and that's what you mean. I think when you say to taking it up to 11, yeah, it's just like, how can you intensify everything, the environment, the people, the situation they're in and how enticing that is because exactly that we can see ourselves, right? Oh, I don't do these things, all of the things right? But I can see myself or I can see, oh, she has a point or he has a point, right? We can, we identify. And the thing we saw, we said earlier is that we all know a Nick Dunn yeah. and we all know an Amy, right? Not to that, you know, not to 11, but we know those people in their less extreme forms. And we wonder about them, don't we? And so Gillian Flynn's novel gets us to think about who they are, where they are, what, what happens, what gets spun out in the extreme. So it's exciting. Not only do we know a Nick and an Amy, there's a bit of a Nick and an Amy within each of us. This is part of the terror. And this is part of the messing with the reader's mind. Gillian Flynn knows exactly who her reader is. Exactly. You know, we talked about this before, like uh, Nick comes down in the first couple of pages, he comes down the stairs and he's in his boxers and he has the heat miser hair. Well, who's going to know what heat miser hair is, right? We are. Because, <laughs> you know, we grew up with the heat miser. It's one of the one of the shows that we the Christmas shows that we saw, or winter shows that we saw. Um, But how does she mess with our minds? She, she takes things that are familiar to us because by the time you're, you are the, the age of the Gillian Flynn reader, you've either been married for a number of years or you've been in relationships of one sort or another. And it's normal in every relationship to have an argument. And sometimes you get really angry and sometimes you break up or you get divorced. And there can be really nasty moments where you're just so furious with the other person, you just want to kill them. Now you don't because you're rational and you, you, 
there is for for most of us there never is a real thought that you're going to kill them but you're just so angry with them that you you want to make them hurt like you hurt that's our shadow selves coming out this is what we saw in marriage story right in that amazing scene where they just let their shadow sides rip and charlie says you know i wish if i knew that our son was safe i wish he would die in a car accident right it's horrible but in in marriage story charlie and nicole have that moment where their shadow sides come out and then they both back off to their rational thinking selves because they actually do love one another they just can't live together and they adore their son they both adore their son and they both want what's best for the son so the difference here in gone girl is that nick and amy don't have that that check and balance in their mind <laughs> neither one of them understands that you can go too far <laughs> and and it it's 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 our shadow sides playing out in the novel and it's terrifying and it messes with our heads because we think oh god are are we capable of that kind of stuff it's not a comfortable feeling it's not a comfortable thought to have but you know, and she know, I mean, like a 15 year old would not read Gone Girl and get it the way a 50 year old or a 40 year old reads Gone Girl and gets it because it's all puppy love when you're 15 and, you know, it's different. What is Dumbledore says? Oh, to be love. Oh, to be young and to feel love's keen sting. <laughs> there's a there's a Harry Potter quote for every occasion. Anyway, OK. Narrative drive. Let's go to narrative drive now. Um, I've already touched on several of these things. So the key thing that I want to leave you with here now, I mean, I will continue to study narrative drive for a few years yet because it's a huge topic. But my my working hypothesis, my my big idea is that narrative drive isn't a storytelling tool in principle like like the other ones that we've been talking about, like point of view or narrative device or you know, whatever else we've been talking about. I think it's an effect that is created as a result of all of the other things working together. Yes, we have mystery, suspense, and dramatic irony. Those are the effects that are created. So mystery is when the protagonist knows more than the reader. Suspense is when the protagonist and the reader have the same information. And dramatic irony is when the reader has more than the protagonist. If you're curious about narrative drive, sincerely read Gone Girl with a pen and paper. Read it through once, go back a second time with pen and paper, start jotting down all the questions that you have. You will not be able to keep up. So what she does here, and this is just in the beginning hook, okay? With using all the tools that we talk about here at StoryGrid, just in the beginning hook. Uh, the primary form of narrative drive in the beginning hook, in my opinion, is suspense, because neither Nick nor the reader knows what happened to Amy. And that's the main storyline here. Okay, that's what this book is about. Where did Amy go? All right. However, there's also dramatic irony, because we have Amy's diary, and Nick doesn't. He doesn't know anything about it until later sometime. I can't remember if it's in the middle bill two or the ending payoff. Middle end of middle bill two, I think, when Boney shows him the the diary. I think. Um but anyway, at the moment it's dramatic irony because we have it and he doesn't. But there is mystery at play too. Because Nick has secrets. And this goes back to what Leslie was saying off the top. This is the point of view choice. This is the narrative device choice that has created this mystery. There's missing time in Nick's morning. We don't know what it is. He does. The man has secrets. We don't know what they are. He knows he hasn't killed Amy. We don't know that. He says uh, at the end of the beginning hook, uh, I can't remember the exact quote, but he, he says that he's told five lies to the police already. 
What were the lies? We don't know. What's going on here? What's Amy really like? We don't know. Nick does. He, he doesn't fully understand, I don't think, the extent uh, that, she, that she is capable of going to and what she's really capable of, but he's got a much better idea than we do. So she's got all three forms of dramatic, uh, all three forms of narrative drive working in the beginning hook, which is 10% of the book. Make no wonder people can't put this thing down. Okay, Leslie, we're going to have to wrap it up. <laughs> this is getting out of hand. <laughs> As all it right. frequently does. <laughs> oh my God. Seriously, like this is, there is so much in this book even if it's not your cup of tea. And I mm -hmm. get it if it isn't. Mm -hmm. If you're serious about learning the craft of storytelling, it's worth your time and effort to study it because Gillian Flynn, or sorry, Gillian Flynn is a master storyteller. She knows how to whip these storytelling tools around and, and create something that really makes our jaws drop. I think that's my key takeaway. <laughs> There's so many I could do, but you know, we end off every episode with a key takeaway. And um, I think that one is mine. What about you, Leslie? What's your key takeaway? Yeah, she makes it look easy. And this is, there is nothing easy about this. Um, there's so much happening. And so if your ambition is to write a story like this, strap in to your study chair <laughs> and and get to work because there's a lot to do and that wraps it up for this week remember if you want to become a better writer you've got to write and you've got to read why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work to support the show leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us and if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash innercircle or writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.